This episode is sponsored by PumaPay. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. Just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Sheila Warren. Hello, and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Sheila Warren. In last week's show, we talked about decentralized finance, better known as DeFi. The first word of that phrase, decentralized, forms the basis of this week's conversation, which will focus on decentralized governance and decentralized autonomous organizations, better known as DAOs. We highly recommend that if you're brand new to this topic, you check out last week's episode first. The DeFi ecosystem is built on top of decentralized structures, meaning that there are no or minimal centralized parties involved. A key question the crypto ecosystem asks itself on a regular basis is, how decentralized do things need to be? And in fact, the perspectives on this question are a large part of where crypto factionalism comes from, with Bitcoin maxes on the one hand shouting that anything besides pure decentralization, quote unquote, is a gateway to doom, while other actors just as vehemently cry that total decentralization is a myth, or note that life is full of trade-offs and decentralization has its costs. Regardless of your personal views, it's undeniable that the governance underlying crypto protocols is one of its most exciting aspects as well as the aspect that is the least understood outside of the crypto domain, and I would argue even within it. As a self-proclaimed governance junkie, I believe that as decentralized governance models are tested and mature, they will have implications well outside of crypto and the financial system. Before we get into the potential of all of this, what even is decentralized governance? Blockchain governance started off as a real-world process in which stakeholders coordinated and determined the direction of a blockchain protocol, usually with respect to its code. This happened in online chats, offline at conferences, and in other somewhat random ways. Off-chain governance systems often result in situations where some stakeholders are more powerful than others, in part because whoever shows up gets to have a say, while those who miss the memo or aren't part of the inner circle are out of luck. On-chain governance developed as a way to provide individual users with more influence in the decision-making process. This mechanism lets stakeholders, usually limited to those who hold what's called governance tokens, vote for changes directly on the blockchain. In our last episode, we walked through the basics of how these governance structures work in the DeFi context. They generally follow a roughly similar process, which in broad strokes starts with a stakeholder or a set of stakeholders issuing a proposal for discussion, getting feedback, and then calling for a vote among token holders. Governance proposals are usually coded into smart contracts that are automatically executed once they receive the requisite amount of votes. Now, on-chain governance has proven to be quite user-inclusive, But it also has limitations, in part because the amount of tokens you hold often determines the weight of your vote. So what's a DAO? Well, the main idea behind DAOs, which, as a reminder, stand for Decentralized Autonomous Organizations, is that they can function without hierarchical management, utilizing on-chain governance and smart contracts. You can think of DAOs roughly as organizations represented by rules encoded as a computer program that's transparent and controlled by organization members as opposed to by central authority. We'll get into more nuance on this later. Adela's financial transaction record and program rules are maintained on a blockchain. And via the on-chain governance mechanism, every governance token holder gets a vote in how the organization functions. 
Hmm. So if everyone's in charge, does that mean no one's in charge? How do you create accountability in a system without formal leadership? How do you create incentives, rewards, or punishments in such a system? And how do you efficiently accommodate the feedback of every single person who has a view, however informed or uninformed it might be? To this last point, think about the last school board or city council meeting you attended, or maybe didn't, and you'll get a sense of what might happen. To discuss this head-exploding new paradigm of potential with us, we have two governance insiders with us today. We'll first bring in Rune Christensen, Chief Executive of Maker Foundation. The MakerDAO issues DAI, the world's first stable quantity on Ethereum blockchain. And we'll then be joined by Ian Lee, Managing Director of IDEO Collab Ventures and a co-founder of Syndicate. But first, let's bring in Michael Casey, my co-host. Hey, Michael. Hey, Sheila. How are you? I'm okay. So DAOs. I mean, I think that last week we realized that we needed to kind of spend a little more time on this topic because the governance underlying uh, DeFi protocols is actually really powerful. Yeah. I think what's really exciting about DeFi is it is the first real functioning manifestation of an idea that was out there fairly early in the whole blockchain space. I remember the first time somebody introduced me to the idea of a DAO, uh, like in something like 2013, and my head just exploded. I couldn't understand the idea. How you have this organization that had nobody in charge that was somehow managed around these smart contracts? And I think people still struggle with it, but it's really been wonderful to see DeFi develop as it has, because now you've got something to point to. So you see you know, how this governance process is working. But I still think that there's so many unanswered questions about, you know, how does this work in the real world? How will it intersect with, you know, mainstream law, the regular structure uh, in which society operates? And, you know, how companies and individuals who are beholden to those laws figure out how to arbitrate with each other. It's exciting, but it, it raises all sorts of questions. So I'm looking forward to the conversation. Well, you know, and it also gets back to kind of your fundamental philosophy about human behavior. Do you actually trust people to self-governance capacity or are you skeptical about that? And there are, I think, reasons to be, you know, positive or negative maybe on that entire concept. But let's bring in our guests because I'd love to hear uh, from them. So, Reed, let's start with you. Uh, can you tell us just the origin story of Maker, Maker Foundation, MakerDAO, how this all came to be? Absolutely. The thing about Maker is it's often considered to be the first DeFi project and just generally it's, it's very old even in blockchain terms. We really started the DAO in a sense. I mean, we started sort of the group of people that would uh, work on the project all the way back in 2015 before Ethereum even launched. And from the very beginning, we were very clear on this, you know, this DAO concept, which at the time, it was a term that Vitalik had invented that was really sort of repurposed based on these earlier concepts of so-called DEX, which was decentralized autonomous corporations. And uh, yeah, and so we got into that basically um, building the maker protocol and trying to create this an unbiased currency, right? A stable coin that is governed by code instead of uh, central bankers. And the DAO sort of just like, it's a natural fit with this approach because if you have this code and you have these smart contracts, you still need something to govern the code basically. And that's the role of the DAO, right? I think I've learned a lot of, you know, the majority of sort of the painful lessons there are to learn about DAOs and about decentralization and decentralized governance. And we sort of really started off um, very quickly being like, we'll just do it all decentralized. We just work together however we feel like, and we'll actually create the code and create a working system. And as a group, we try to operate in this way from a very idealistic perspective for, you know, actually for several years, it kind of failed. What ended up happening is just like sort of, as you would imagine, nothing really got done in terms of like really getting it done, getting it coordinated, you know, shipping the code, building the product. So we actually, in a sense, we sort of gave up on trying to build sort of bootstrap a DAO out of thin air, in a sense. And we instead said, okay, we need 
to organize ourselves into a foundation and then have the foundation kind of like bootstrap it out. So we created this centralized organization called the Maker Foundation, which then created the code. And then once the code was live, then suddenly there was some structure that the community could organize around. And you started getting this sense of there's something that makes sense here because there are these essentially like levers and, and mechanisms to pull and to change and to, to interact with through on-chain voting, like you just described. And that creates this kind of sense of purpose and actually s- structure. That means it now, you know, it doesn't just become total chaos like, like it started off with. That has evolved over many years. It takes a lot of time and you have to really iterate and you have to kind of like really learn by doing and, and make a lot of mistakes because it, a DAO is kind of like a living organism in the sense that it's a whole group of people that need to learn collectively, right? And a lot of, you know, mistakes were made and a lot of sort of weird decisions were made that were then learned from. And eventually the project reached a point where we are now, which is that the foundation is actually um, in the process, like the very last stage of shutting down completely. So we're actually going to completely, you know, we're completely eliminating the mega foundation. And then we're entering the phase where the DAO is sort of, I guess it's become what we thought we could build overnight almost seven years ago. And we've managed to now reach that point after all this time. And it's really exciting. I mean, to see it play out in all the, the different ways So I have about a billion follow-up questions. Um, But before we get to those, I'm going to focus a bit and bring in Ian on this question of centralization and this concept that you sometimes need something that is a trusted institution almost before you can then release to the wild your decentralized governance. And so Ian, you tweeted recently that uh, you think millions of DAOs will be fully autonomous, decentralized, trustless, and void of human connections, but billions of DAOs will be semi-automated decentralized, relying on existing networks, and deep in human connections. So I'd love to go a little deeper with that for us, and then also tell us how this applies to Syndicate, one of the newer DAOs. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's a history in the crypto space where like, there are these kind of new inventions and terms that, that come around that sort of take on different meanings over time, right? Like, I think that's true about crypto, like when it was just like Bitcoin and crypto. Then it, there was like this evolution of how to think about the word blockchain. Same thing with NFTs, things, same thing with DeFi. And, and I would argue that the same thing is true as well about this term DAOs, which has been around for a long time. And you know, folks like Christian and Rune and many others have really pioneered kind of like different models for, for DAOs over the you know, past number of years. I would argue that we are starting to enter into a new phase of DAOs where the definition and, and framing of them are going to evolve. So historically, DAOs have been you know, referred to as decentralized autonomous organizations. We feel pretty strongly that maybe a, a more accurate term for these things are decentralized automated organizations. And, and when you frame it kind of through that lens, what that almost necessarily implies is that there is a spectrum of automation that DAOs can live on from fully automated or autonomous, which is what they've been known of as today. And I think that you know, those kinds of things like MakerDAO and many others are extremely powerful in the right context. But on the other end of the spectrum, you have decentralized automated organizations, which means that parts of them are automated, but not fully automated or autonomous and, and everything in between, right? So when you think of it that way, in my mind, opens up the design space for what DAOs are, what they could be used for. The thing that I think is really powerful about this way of framing it is that it starts to open up all these 
uses or applications for DAOs that might not seem like a DAO when you frame it as fully autonomous. So for example, what if the four of us started a DAO? Like, what if we just kind of came together and, and because we're friends and we wanted to pool our resources together to invest in things that we felt mattered in the world, whether it's like investing in a startup or a project or providing a grant to someone to work on something that we think is important, or you know, even something as crazy as or, or as simple as like funding a person's education in the real world. Is that a DAO or not? And I would argue that that is something that lives on that spectrum of partial automation, where you can use some of these frameworks and technologies and tools to coordinate human beings and capital across the internet in very efficient and meaningful ways. And so what Syndicate is doing is it's kind of very much inspired from what Rune and Maker and so many others have done over the years. And taking that kind of mental model of like decentralized automated organizations and offering kind of this protocol to create investment DAOs across the internet globally, enabling groups of people, whether it's like three people or thousands or millions potentially, to come together on the internet to invest in things that they care about. And that's that's what Syndicate is really at its core enabling as a protocol. Afraid of missing out on the latest crypto opportunities? Well, then it's time to head on over to pumapay.io. PumaPay's first liquidity pool is now live on PancakeSwap. Deposit liquidity today and claim your share of a 750 million PMA token reward. Hurry now, visit pumapay.io today. That's pumapay.io. I think I just want to pull this thing back a little bit and let's talk a little bit about what the real benefits are of this kind of a structure because I think it's tempting, particularly because of the way that the crypto community sometimes frames the pros and cons of what it's doing, certainly the Bitcoin community. It often frames it in moral terms, right? We don't want to be beholden to this centralized entity that's going to control us. So it's about freedom. But I think there's so much more going on that you were kind of alluding to there with automation and everything else, how by removing these entities, suddenly these new opportunities arise in terms of efficiencies and everything else. Maybe you could break it down. Like, Why is it beneficial that we would go away from the existing financial system to one that is run in this otherwise complicated way? Well, I think there's two ways to answer that. So one is kind of what Rune and Maker and many others are doing, which is the fully autonomous side, right? The way that I look at these uh, fully autonomous DAOs are really codifying important, in, in DeFi case, financial primitives, right? But it, it could extend to other things beyond just DeFi. But you know, financial services as software primitives on the internet that are about economic freedom globally, you know, not allowing that sort of system to be tampered with by anyone. That is really important. Those things provide incredible value to people all over the world. And those things are going to be incredibly, incredibly valuable. On the other end of the spectrum, though, it's like the four-person DAOs or 10-person or 30-person DAOs or 100-person DAOs, right? Which is, is a very different value proposition and story than like things like Maker on the other end of the spectrum. W- what is that? And why is that important? Well, the world is made up of 8 billion plus people. And those people are organized into formal and informal social networks and communities and friendships and circles, right? And those micro kind of social networks and communities, they, they have different cultures. They have different 
objectives. They have different hopes and dreams. They, they want to do different things. They want to accomplish different things in the world, right? And so what DAO technology can offer to those communities at scale is the ability for these communities that are already existing in the real world, like you know, friendships or you know, alumni groups or whatever, to more efficiently coordinate human capital as well as financial capital to affect change in the areas that they care about. Right. So I don't know what us four would care about. Maybe we care about crypto and like, let's start a little, you know, mini Rune, Ian, Sheila, you know, Michael Casey fund and let's like support founders in the crypto space. It could be like, we all care about education. So let's pool together some of our resources with some other friends to go invest in scholarships or whatever. Like, literally anything that people might want to devote resources to are very likely more efficiently and better coordinated via Dow Tech than traditional financial infrastructure. Because if, if you think about how you might do that today, how would you do that? Like you'd have to maybe go on AngelList, maybe you know, hire a lawyer for thousands of dollars. It might take weeks to kind of like set up you know, a legal entity and get the paperwork in place. You know, with Dow Tech and tech like the tech that we're building at Syndicate, you could literally spin this up in seconds and start deploying capital immediately. And we think that that is fundamentally like a net better thing for the world because of all this friction and inefficiency that exists with, you know, coordinating human and financial capital on the internet. Yeah, I, I like the way you, you ended there with this, the coordination problem, right? The fact that we've got to get all this structure in place, this legal frameworks and get everybody in agreed in a room. And it's an enormous amount. It's, it's the transaction cost. It's that same classic idea of the value of the firm. And let me just jump in here. Like, it's not just about reducing costs. Me and my co-founder, we we talk a lot about how what filmmaking looked like before YouTube. Before YouTube, content films and stuff had a very particular look to them. You know, only certain types of films were made. Only certain types of people can make films, right? Typically people with a lot of financial resources in particular areas of the world, right? Now with YouTube, you have billions and billions of content that is user-generated. You have things like Charlie bit my finger and stuff like that, that is now, you know, wildly popular. And by reducing the kind of costs and time to create content, you now have this explosion of content that is bigger than the film industry itself, right? And so, in many ways, we think that DAOs are very similar, which is yes, it can dramatically disrupt the financial system, just like other DeFi protocols like Maker and Uniswap and others. What it also does is it unlocks totally new markets and applications and uses that were not possible in the previous world because it was too expensive or too timely to create. So for example, one of the syndicate DAOs that we launched uh, using syndicate protocol is this new investment fund called Komarebi. And Komarebi was this group of five women across five different organizations in the crypto space that came together to invest in more female founders and non-binary founders in the crypto ecosystem globally. And they created that syndicate on syndicate protocol instantly for basically no cost at all. And they are now starting to invest in more female founders in the crypto space. And like, why hasn't that happened for the 10 years that you know, crypto has been around? It's because in order to do so, it would have cost so much money to even just get that thing out the door where it just wasn't worth it, right? And now because we can reduce the cost, we can unlock these things that always should have happened, are really important in the world, and can now happen because the barriers to entry are now so much lower. Yeah, Rune, 
I'm really struck by the fact that I, I wasn't aware of this. Maybe we've reported it. Maybe we haven't. If not, I'll make sure that we do. The, uh, the fact that the foundation, the McIndale Foundation is being wound down. It's a really interesting way to, to look at these questions as well, because it strikes me that the way you were describing the necessity in the first place for that foundation is that you still needed the formation of something that the average person could relate to. That was a, a legal construct of some sort, something that they could actually attach their trust to to then formulate the governance rules, see that structure, and then get out of the way. Is that a fair way to describe it? We can't automatically create these decentralized structures. We need some sort of transitional mechanism. Is that what's going on here? It's the kind of question that, you know, you can really talk for a long time trying to answer that. You know, I sort of look at a certain area of DeFi and blockchain. I'm aware of things like MolochDAO and these kind of things. I mean, there's a spectrum between, I guess, a multisig and a traditional DAO, and there's all sorts of stuff you can do there. If you want to make a decentralized organization, you should kind of like get a bunch of people and make sure they're totally decentralized and not really coordinating and then let them sort of sit in a room and chat room and decentralize, right? And then it will sort of like happen by itself almost. Even if something is built, there's just no chance that that's actually decentralized. I mean, it's like a game theoretic equilibrium where there are all these different factors that push things into some sort of steady state. It's like just tons of systems and incentives and stakeholders and various types of, sort of motivated individuals acting in their own self-interest that are all working towards pushing you know, the price of diet towards $1. I love it. Nature abhors a vacuum, tyranny of structurelessness. I think this is such a fascinating concept, right? That in order to build something that truly where you cede power, there has to be almost a power center to cede. And the centralized kind of function helps provide coordination and some structure in those early days to get alignment, to attract the kinds of people that care about similar enough things that they're going to be moving in at least somewhat aligned direction. And even if their own self-interest leads them to act in certain different ways, at least there's alignment on what the heck are we all doing here in the first place? Like, what is our ultimate objective? What are we trying to accomplish? And what might that be? In this case, of course, it's uh, focusing on the die. You know, I think one thing that's really interesting about governance you do get, I think in these, you get people who are really excited and they're constantly, you know, in all the forums and they're chatting about everything and they have an opinion about everything. Again, informed or uninformed might be the case. But then over time, one of the biggest problems in governance and any political process is actually low participation. So, and I think that's particularly true when it comes to tokens that wind up having a lot of value because a lot of people will want to hold those tokens for speculative purposes and they may not want to get involved in governance because it takes time to be informed, to vote, to weigh in, to educate yourself. The same is in any democracy. And so what motivates people in your experience, both of you with extensive experience, what motivates people to engage? How is that self-interest parlayed into actual engagement in governance of a DAO and then wading into the often messy you know, discussions and things that happen around proposals. A couple things that we think about, like if DAOs are on a spectrum of automation, some of these problems don't exist at smaller group levels because you're relying on existing trust networks. And I think in those scenarios, the need for trustless setups for full kind of decentralized maximus uh, designs and things like that, or even tooling isn't necessary which I think helps in some ways, like in getting those kinds of things off the ground and working in, in the world. At the same time, like I think on the other end of the spectrum with these fully decentralized protocols, it can be both very powerful and also very difficult to manage those communities. You know, there's another DeFi protocol, it's not Maker, but they're sitting on a, a very big war chest. And even to 
agree on setting aside a few hundred thousand dollars or a million dollars to provide grants to developers in their ecosystem is like a monumental task from a governance perspective. You know, I'm sure Rune can comment on uh, other things that he's seen, but that doesn't seem like the way that things should work. They need decentralized governance, but they also need agility to you know, rapidly develop their protocols, ecosystems, communities, and things like that. And so I think that we're still in the early days of what fully decentralized governance looks like and how that's going to work at scale and at the speed of crypto. So there are a lot of things that people are thinking about from our view on, on the syndicate side. You know, we're talking with a bunch of different protocol treasuries about how they might be able to, at like the top level, vote on a proposal that carves out like a particular portion. Maybe it's not very big. It could be like not very much money at all. It could be like 5% up to like 10 to 20% of the treasury. And then to shove that into like syndicate DAOs that are launched on our protocol that entrust kind of the management of those portions of the treasury to specific either members or parts of the community that can move faster, whether it's like investing in startups, funding developers, building kind of awareness in geographies all over the world. And that model is not only attractive to these decentralized treasuries, but also highly compatible to them, right? So it starts to kind of like blend the fully decentralized autonomous form of a DAO with like these kind of almost like sub automated not fully decentralized DAOs. And I think that like that's kind of, in our opinion, what we think is the future is kind of this actually not like monolithic DAO, but more a network of DAOs that are interconnected. And like that's part of what Syndicate is building is this protocol and infrastructure to enable, whether it's a person, a venture fund, a protocol treasury, a random group of five people on the internet, maybe not random, maybe people that know each other, but to create like DAOs and interconnect them to each other to achieve different purposes. And I think that that's actually a really exciting frontier for DAOs in the next few years. It's so fascinating because we're seeing some movement where some DAOs are saying, you know, it's a different model. Okay, let's allocate a certain percentage of treasury or a certain amount, whatever that amount might be in some cases, large or small, whatever it is, for a certain purpose. Governance votes on that. We then create an organization. Maybe it's even a C Corp or an LLC or something kind of very traditional, right? Around that, we assign a, I don't know, a board or whatever kind of governance, a, t- a very traditional, typical kind of corporate governance structure around it. We've agreed as a community that we want to kind of dedicate this amount of funds to this exercise, whatever it is, and then we'll empower whoever we put on top of that thing. But I, I love the idea of actually creating almost this chain of DAOs in the way, or mini DAOs almost, where to your point, like a network where you're saying, no, that will still remain a DAO in its kind of essence and structure and organization and governance. It's just that it will have a smaller coordination problems or free rider or whatever other, th- other kind of issues might arise in these giant communities that just kind of lead to the inability to actually move, let alone move efficiently, uh, let alone move in crypto time. I keep referring back to the spectrum. That also implies that organizations can have different DAOs across that entire spectrum, right? So for like a DeFi protocol treasury as important as one is like Maker and other systems, you don't want to entrust that to like a few people. You want full decentralized governance where it is um, something that can't be like tampered with by any one person or, or authority, right? And so that totally makes sense at that layer. You know, part of what Syndica does is highly compatible to that. It starts to like offer, you know, um, ways to sort of start to segment that, bring DAOs to life, and also coordinate with protocol treasuries in ways that 
we believe is necessary as part of this like next evolution of the ecosystem. We would love to hear from your experience and thoughts on this. Again, as one of the most voluminous senior senior DAOs. Yeah, it's, like, it's not so often I even get to sort of talk about the DAO concept. So I just have like, it's sort of like an endless stream of things and experiences I want to <laughs> we love it. You know, sort of rattle off. But I want to talk about one central thing that comes up very often, which is like participation and, you know, voter apathy, which is actually a problem we're dealing with. Like in Maker specifically, it's very often sort of, you know, consider when people talk about voter apathy because there's just like, there's not a lot of voting turnout. And it's also, it follows sort of strange patterns that I don't think people would have predicted beforehand. And there was this earlier point, right? That like DAOs that are controlled through governance tokens, where the more you own, the more you decide. They have this kind of capitalist element to them, right? That like, it's the rich people who own all the stuff. They make all the decisions, right? And there's actually this extra factor in maker and, and Ethereum-based DAOs, right? Which are the Ethereum gas fees, right? Which actually add a whole extra dimension where any person who wants to vote in maker, they have to pay quite a lot of money even to vote at all, right? I mean, there were times where it was like $50 to vote and there were like really important votes that have to pass and people just begging someone like, vote. But if you're some guy with like a few tokens, you shouldn't go and pay $50, right? So it becomes all about like the whales, basically, that there's like a few really big holders that make a lot of, of the actual votes that execute stuff and sort of get things done on chain. That's not ideal. And the solution is basically delegation rather. That's something that's proven to, to work to some extent. We don't have that implemented in Maker yet, but it's coming quite soon. So in Maker, like we have a lot of decisions such as setting long-term rates for collateral and deciding sort of millions of dollars of exposure to collateral that were actually decided based on proposals made by some random person on the forum, basically. There are multiple sort of rounds of how to processing. First, you have to go through a forum poll, for instance. That's like a very common process. And so forum polls, they're actually like democratic. So that's like one person, one vote. So you have this kind of filter where even if there's like a whale that holds all the tokens, if they can't get through the forum, they, they might actually have a hard time to get a real vote up. It's so clear in these smaller scale DAOs and smaller systems that the thing that's going to drive people to do good and sort of participate is sort of their existing relationships and their sort of that bond and, and the trust and so on. And to some extent, I mean, when you scale it out to like a full-scale DAO, I actually think you can, you can make the same argument and say there is some requirement for what I would basically call like altruism, essentially, where there has to be some sort of like people that are in it for sort of the greater good or some sort of belonging to the community or sort of being a part. And, and if a DAO was like humans that just acting like robots trying to make money, theoretically, it could work, but it could also very easily blow up, basically. And in practice, I don't think it could work at all. Wow, that's fascinating. <laughs> Even just today, people were like, no, everything is going to be autonomous and we don't need human beings. But, but that's, that's pretty fascinating that you say that at the maker level. There's still all these ambitions. You want to lock down stuff. If you can automate things, you absolutely want to do that. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about how creative we're going to be able to get with some of these systems. But right now, when you think about a DAO employing someone, for example, right, and the ability for a DAO to kind of eliminate a contract by putting a proposal through governance and like the stability you can provide certain kinds of efforts or initiatives can be challenging because let's say you decide, you know, okay, we're going to experiment with hire some kind of role, right? And we're going to have this person come in and, you know, we're going to evaluate them on a periodic basis and all of governance is going to vote on that. You know, who's taking that job? Because they're like, well, do I have a job? Do I not have a job? Who's my boss? Is my boss ever on? Is it thousands of people? Like, how do I make the case that I'm doing a good job? 
what is my incentive to actually do this? Right. So it comes really interesting. You think about traditional concepts like corporate law or risk to your point or liability, or even just basic employment. When I think about how decisions are made, well, it's kind of two points. One is I think about the difference between ballot measures and I sit in, I, I live in California. So we have, you know, every election, it was like 5,000 that feels like ballot measures that make it to our ballot. The way you do that is you go out and you get a petition and like all oh, a certain number of people have to sign it. It's a very big number. Then it gets put directly to a direct vote by citizens who have to kind of agree or disagree on this thing. Half the things that come through, most people I know have no interest in voting on. <laughs> like, I don't know what that thing is. Why is it my job to educate myself about this? So you get an element where you can over time almost calibrate to what sorts of things the community wants to vote on and what kinds of things the community is like, why are you wasting my time with this? I don't even know what this is. I don't really care. I want someone else to decide. And so I do think over time with some of these giant communities, you're going to see trends and directions of travel, the things that get a lot of engagement and tracking that, the things that get very little engagement. And those are the things you might wind up outsourcing, to, Ian, to your point, to kind of a mini DAO or a network of DAOs or smaller DAO or even a traditional C-Corp or LLC or trust or, you know, whatever kind of form where you hire, you know, staff and you have a board of directors or whatever it is, and you kind of run that stuff outside of whatever the community is indicated and not interested in. But the interesting thing to me is how much this can shift and change over time as token holders enter and exit a community. And that's sort of their choice, right? Because in order to have vote, to have stake, you got to be a participant. You have stake in the game. In most of these cases, you actually are like the value of the underlying token is of critical importance to you. And so you feel engaged in it because you do have some financial commitment at stake within that system. And when that goes away, well, then so does your vote. So it's an interesting kind of capture model, I think, that you don't see really anywhere else. You, know, you don't see this in the kind of ordinary political process, even though the analogies to the regular political process are quite profound, I think, and quite direct. And there's an interesting question here. And I think, you know, Michael, I'll turn it to you. I'm thinking a bit about kind of legacy institutions and, you know, traditional models and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, I was just thinking clearly traditional companies, traditional. Let's think about finance, for example, because here we are in the you know, DeFi is regardless of where we're going with it it's necessarily a challenge of some sort to the existing financial system. And we're constantly barraged with conversations about, okay, banks are getting in or, you know, this hedge fund's getting in on, and so forth. But can this system essentially bend to their needs or can they bend to the needs of this system? Is there, is there a framework within this where these very traditional centralized corporations, banks, hedge funds alike, can feel comfortable with these kinds of structures for example, like a smart contract that executes on a particular deal, if they wanted the opportunity to arbitrate that but couldn't, is that going to be a problem for them? Yeah. I mean, I would say there's kind of two ways to think about this. One is at the DeFi kind of protocol level. And then the other is like these mini DAOs, right, that we've been talking about where they, you know, often kind of model after existing trust relationships and social networks. So on the DeFi side, I mean, I think Rune probably knows quite a bit about this. But there are many other protocols, whether it's like Compound or Aave or you know, others, where traditional fintechs and banks and others are all now sort of exploring this question like, can we leverage DeFi protocols to enable our users and customers to do X, Y, and Z? Whether it's like get a loan, utilize stable coins to move money, generate crypto yield, DeFi yield that is higher than the traditional system. I think that there is growing interest in that. Maybe not from like the city groups like I came from, you know, or the Goldmans necessarily of the world, 
maybe initially like more of the fintechs, you know, especially like crypto friendly ones, whether it's like Square and Robinhood and PayPal and things like that. My guess is that it's going to happen. I think that systems like Maker and others have been in the wild for a long time. They've been battle tested to a large degree. I mean, they've survived many uh, you know, of these bear market pullbacks and things like that and shown a great deal of, of resilience. You know, Maybe it's not tomorrow, maybe it's not even in a few years, but I think in the long arc of things, we're going to see more and more fintechs and ultimately traditional banks being powered by DeFi protocols on the back end. Otherwise, they're going to not be around in like 50 to 100 years. I mean, I really think that DeFi is kind of the Kodak moment of the financial services industry. That's what I was telling people at Citigroup, even when no one would listen. I think the other thing to think about is like, are there bridges to the traditional world in the near term where maybe we don't have to wait you know, for a long time for traditional institutions to start to adopt DeFi and DAO technology? And that is part of what Syndicate as a platform and a protocol is doing, which is you know, right now we have the ability Our protocol enables anyone on the internet to create an investment-focused DAO among any number of people, whether it's, again, one person, five people, a thousand people, a million people, even though there's quite a bit of work to do to get to those larger scales. But also what we already have is we built up legal and operational infrastructure where we can snap legal entities into DAOs. Why is that interesting? Well, for a couple of reasons. One is by snapping a legal entity into a DAO, if the user wants it, no pressure at all if they don't. But if they do, that means they can sign legal agreements in the real world, whether investing in like startups that are not crypto, whether that's employing someone, whether that's like entering into some agreement that you have to like physically sign or, or digitally sign. Giving those kinds of powers enable it to cross over to the real world and not solely live in the, the digital and crypto world, which is really interesting. And where that becomes particularly relevant related to your question, Michael, is that sometimes those kinds of things like a legal entity and the ability to kind of like wrap around that, the appropriate legal protections, kind of like Rune was talking about where like, you know, you create these C-corps or LLCs or whatever, those are necessary conditions for other people to participate in those DAOs. So for example, like we've set up multiple syndicates now where folks like the Kleiner Perkins of the world and other traditional investors have actually invested in these DAOs. And that was only possible with that kind of audience and capital because we snapped a legal entity into it and we made it legally recognized as a legitimate organization powered by DAO technology behind it. And so what I'm saying is that the hybridization of fully decentralized and partially, I guess, automated or whatever, that's what's going to enable the acceleration of institutional players to adopt this technology. For example, Syndicate could create a Syndicate DAO, and that Syndicate DAO's sole purpose, which could be managed by a professional manager, could be just to attract capital from like banks or other people and deploy that into Maker. And so in, in that kind of setup, it might be more likely that certain organizations or banks or whatever might be more comfortable interacting with Maker or some of these other DeFi protocols through a hybrid organization that you know might be crypto native in terms of their tech stack, but like legally recognized and protected as an organization and use those hybrid new intermediaries to accelerate their 
ambitions to, you know, leverage these these new protocols. And so I, I think that that is an area that um, we're going to see more of. Yeah, a bridging mechanism. We're running out of time here. We'll have to wrap up in a moment. But I just want to shift away from finance. So we're, we're constantly focusing on, okay, DeFi became this proven world, financial world for DAOs. But Ian, you know, you and I, in fact, some time back, 12, six years ago, about microgrids and, and solar microgrids and so forth. And it's just come back into the world where I'm involved in this. Jill and I are working on some stuff in terms of ESG. But something occurred to me the last couple of days, and it just I think it's worth exploring with you guys. And that is like DAOs as functions for things like solar microgrids. And the context I'm thinking of here is this big announcement this week in El Salvador. You know, there's a big opportunity now. Bitcoin uh, investors, Bitcoin participants are being invited into El Salvador to do things. And I think, as we've been saying on this program for quite some time, there really needs to be a very concerted strategic move for miners to work with energy policymakers to, to, to prove out this idea that you know, Bitcoin could actually be a driver of green energy expansion by essentially underwriting the, the development of these things. But you really want them to, to also achieve some of these other things that we talk a lot about, financial inclusion, and, and of course, this green energy solution. And, and also, by the way, decentralizing the electricity grid, which is less vulnerable to things like that colonial pipeline hack. So this is really interesting meeting of objectives that I think could be playing out here. But I would like to think that the last thing you really want to do is just create a mechanism for a authoritarian government to essentially capture all of that incoming funds for their own you know, reserves and coffers, that you'd want to create a system whereby these energy systems are, are community-based, that there is a means by which if there is payments being made in Bitcoin or any other crypto for that matter, to these systems that these local communities aren't captured by you know, the big village head who's answering to the local political party or whomever, that you truly do spread the wealth. Are there lessons to be learned, is where I'm going with this, from what DeFi has achieved in the financial realm to something like that, to, to the developing world, to this other area that Sheila and I spent a lot of time focusing on? But maybe to, to you, Rune, are there lessons we can take from that to this much more sort of localized developing world environment? In the developing world and in, you know, it, it places where there's a lack of rule of law, suddenly like DeFi and DAOs and, and blockchain takes on a whole other meaning because it starts to actually fulfill some of the, the role that the legal system itself isn't even filling, right? And I actually think that's why I often say is that multi-sigs are kind of like this, you know, there's going to be one of the biggest impacts in the, in the world. Once developing world just learns how to use multi-sigs, that's going to make such a big difference because I, mean, I remember learning about this in, in business school, basically, that one of the big risks in some of the African countries that, you know, that just have this problem of sort of jumpstarting their economies is that it's just like they're so low trust, essentially. So like if you start a business with someone else, you, you don't have a legal system, you don't have like, you don't have a bank. All you can do is like you can pull some cash. Like it's so tempting for either of the, the people working together, let's say the two people working together, right, to just take the cash and run anytime they have a chance, right? That exact problem is like a huge driver of why you don't see as many opportunities even being taken, why you have so much issues when you don't even have a functioning legal system or sort of a functioning uh, web of, of trust. And just a simple multisig can completely sort of fix that, right? And really like take the role of an entire legal system, an entire sort of a court enforcement, banks with accounts and all this stuff. Like all you need is just like a, literally the simplest thing that's been built with blockchain other than like Bitcoin itself. So um, I think the more advanced stuff like DeFi and like insurance and 
that's just going to take things to an even more sort of uh, you know amazing level, right? In terms of the possibility to do leapfrogging, right? Where you can just like jump entirely past having a legal system at all, at least with some things. You know, Syndicate is actually not just a for-profit investing protocol. There are parameters of the protocol that enable people to create investing DAOs that have zero fees and zero profits, like meaning that it can be used for philanthropic donation or grant-making purposes. So, you know, we're, we're starting to talk about partnerships with different large NGOs about how we might be able to distribute grants around the world to people that are doing important work in areas of like medicine or whatever, which is really powerful when you think about how would they do that today? Like how would they distribute even $50 to someone in India or Africa or whatever to do something really important, like deliver you know vaccinations or something like that through the traditional banking system? That is not super straightforward. With Komarebi, right? It's investing in female and non-binary founders all over the world internationally. That's really important. We're also working with a group that will be launching doing something very similar in other underrepresented minority communities. We also launched another syndicate DAO earlier this week called Fiat Lux DAO that bought an NFT from uh, UC Berkeley, the first NFT that represented sort of Nobel Prize winning um, research in the area of, of cancer research. Uh, the proceeds of that are going to fund more scientific research into the UC Berkeley community. What is that? That's not really a DAO. It's not really investing. I mean, these are just people coming together on the internet to allocate resources to things that they care about as a community, whether that's a community of five people or a thousand or a million people. And I think that that is, it's going to be a really, really big thing in the, the, the coming years where everyone on the internet can become a investor and these people can organize, as Jesse Weldon likes to call them, as investment clubs on the internet using crypto and DAO technology. And the implications of that and the impact of that are profound. The other thing that I would mention is that a lot of these like legal structures that are being created, it's super interesting. And actually, like I've been following what Maker's been doing as a lot of inspiration. I think they are pioneering along with a few other projects like what the future of crypto in general is actually going to be, where you create sort of like temporary centralized structures, you transition some or all of those things into decentralized DAOs, and then maybe like coming full circle, you then use that to then create new centralized uh, entities and structures to go go after things that centralized entities and organizations are are really well purposed to go after. Where this is all landing is that's going to happen across or should happen pretty much across every single protocol where like they may look like a new not just corporate structure but like almost like conglomerates you know where conglomerates have these the top level organization and they have all these different sub business units that may or may not be kind of closely managed and now you introduce you know a decentralized treasury and and other kind of DAOs within that thing and i think that that hybridization of these like corporate DAO models is where the world's going in terms of like DeFi and, and beyond. So it's going to be really, really exciting to see you know, how those things kind of evolve and the type of pioneering work that Maker and so many others are doing that are going to effectively form these playbooks for how others should kind of think they're doing something similar. 
Well, I'm afraid that we're out of time. I know we could go another hour on this topic. It is it's just endlessly fascinating thinking about the possibilities and potential and how these different models are going to wind up working in consonance or in concert together to kind of move us forward. I thank you so much, both of you, for, for helping to shed light on this really less understood aspect of this entire ecosystem and one that I think is so incredibly powerful. Really grateful to both of you, Rune Christensen of Maker, Ian Lee, IDEO and Syndicate, and of course, to my host, Michael Casey. Thanks so much, Michael, for being here again today. Stay tuned next week for another episode of Money Reimagined. Bye, guys. You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Sheila Warren, Michael J. Casey, Rune Christensen, and Ian Lee. Our theme song is Shepherd, and this episode was produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau with announcements by Adam B. Levine. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcasts at coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. <laughs>